0: This is Johnny Levy Cork City captain, and you're
1: listening to the Goal Ireland podcast. Soccer is rarely mentioned now. League of Ireland gets about a couple of seconds on the radio. It feels as if when you play down south, it has more of a European style of play.
2: That that is
0: a phrase that I've heard many of times, go is back where they belong. Can't wait, absolutely can't (laughs) wait. They made it very hard for me to come here. I fought my way through the mail to make it happen.
2: Euro 2016 is getting closer and Ireland are finalising their preparations with friendlies against the Netherlands and Belarus The squad has already been trimmed to 31 but is set to be reduced again with Martin O'Neill expected to choose his final 23 over the weekend You're listening to the Goal Ireland podcast I'm Dave O'Grady, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes and Soundcloud and don't forget to follow Goal Ireland on Facebook and we're at Goalcom Ireland on Twitter We'll be hearing from Dutch football expert Stefan courts to get some insight into Ireland's Euro 2016 warm-up opposition. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by the Goal Ireland duo of Jack O'Toole and Ronan Murphy to talk all things Irish football. Jack, to start with yourself, you've been out at Abbottstown and at the Aviva Stadium covering the team all week. What's the latest news from the camp? I know there's been a few injuries knocking around.
3: I have indeed, Dave. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, basically, the latest news has been, well, to start first and foremost, James McCarthy and Kieran Clark are both going to be real there for tomorrow night's game. And O'Neill said that John O'Shea is certainly going to start. So, I mean, straight off the bat, we're going to have O'Shea would possibly... You know, it's going to be Richard Keogh or Shane Duffy uh, alongside him. Um, and then elsewhere, we also have Shea Given and Aidan um have both been mentioned during the week. I think O'Neill said today that their fitness is both improving. And then also from a League of Ireland uh, perspective, we have Dundalk's Gary Rogers, who's also mentioned uh, as he could possibly be in line for a debut tomorrow night. Um, I, I don't know if he'll quite get on the field, but O'Neill did hint that he could be involved in the squad for tomorrow night's game.
2: Ronan Murphy, an interesting squad choice. Again, Martin O'Neill's first, I guess his first concern is not to get pick up any unnecessary injuries. We've seen it happen in the past, all right.
0: Yeah, I'd say that that's probably every player's concern as well, especially the guys that are more or less guaranteed to be gone, like your Seamus Coleman or your Glenn Whelan. These sort of players will be looking to, to stay fit and make sure that they don't go into any needless challenges. But uh, it should be a chance for for some of the, the fringe guys uh, to, to prove their place. And for that reason alone, it might be an interesting match because o- oftentimes these these May friendlies can be a letdown.
2: A fringe player, though, Ronan, would have to provide something very special to get into that squad for Euro 2016.
0: Yeah, definitely. It'd be hope. You'd be hoping for uh, some sort of moment of magic or uh, even if you look back at the, the, Euro, the Euro 2012, the friendlies before that, Kieran Westwood had two outstanding games in the, in the friendlies be- beforehand and he did himself great favours getting in. He won't be featuring this in the game against Holland anyway because of the, the uh, club commitments he has, but... Uh, you you think that maybe one of the goalkeepers, depending on who plays, maybe she- Shea Given or David Ford, one of them, if they can perform well, they might guarantee their spot on the plane. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, one player who there has been a lot of eyes on and a lot of questions about is Aidan McGeady. Uh, obviously. His importance for Ireland is something that Martin O'Neill addressed at the press conference this week. He's, you know, he, O'Neill spoke about the need for the Everton midfield to get to get his swagger back. Have a listen to this.
4: Do You know, I, I would just uh, try and get Aiden back to to, um, you know, that that swagger that he has. I don't, I don't think he ever loses that. As Tony mentioned there, I think that uh, the idea, the confidence, maybe would be a bit affected if you thought that. Uh, you know that you uh, you felt that you've you've gone out and loaned. You wanted to be part of that that team, and that wasn't going to it wasn't going to happen. So yeah, he would need he would need that that confidence built again. He'd need that wee bit of swagger, which I, uh, again I don't think he loses, but maybe just it um, so occasionally is hidden under a bushel. But I think that um, I think overall it's trying to get him back to to what he's best at, and that's taking players on in the final third of the field. Using magical feet to go past players—it's a gift that not not that many people in the in the country possess, and uh, and he can give us something uh, you know that we we might not actually have in, in in that area of the field. Those things. But again, I absolutely agree with you. it's a, it's a big week for him as well.
2: Well, Jack, Aidan McGeady, Martin O'Neill there reminding Irish media and Irish fans just what McGeady does possess. But surely, if you're Aidan McGeady, you're going to know how important these friendly games are.
3: Yeah, you absolutely Uh, are. You'd think that McGeady would be, um, he'd have a place in in the side. Because, I mean, he does, as Martin said, he does possess the rare ability to take a defender wrong. When you think about it, there's not a lot of Irish players. That can really pick the ball up on the wing, you know, go out there, man, and really get by him. The problem with McGeady has been that he tends to often, if he gets by two, he tries to take on the third. If he gets by three, he tries to take on the fourth, and sometimes can cough the ball up. Or also, with his crossing can be quite fifty-fifty. You know, you never really know the, where the ball is going to go once he gets to the byline. But he, he's had a tough time um, because obviously at Everton it didn't work out great. He was let go, moved on to Sheffield Wednesday, had a good start there, but then is deemed surplus to requirements. Yeah, he in the wasn't playoffs.
2: involved. At all in Sheffield Wednesday's quest for promotion?
3: Absolutely, yeah. He's, he was he was sent back this week, um, you know, because he's been deemed surplus requirements uh, for them. So he, he, the confidence has taken a, a big knock. Um, so look, I think he will start whether it's tomorrow night or Belarus. I really feel like he's going to get started in one of those two games. But he has to have, you know, one of the better Aiden McGeady games rather right, than one of these games where he goes missing or the end product is, is not quite there. Um, I think O'Neill's been really loyal to him throughout the entirety of his career. So I can't imagine him not really making the 23. But, I mean, he's really going to have to have a big game if he wants to any kind of place or meaningful place, um, I suppose, in any of the games of the Euros.
2: Would you bring him, Row? McGeady?
3: Yeah. yeah,
0: definitely. Without a doubt. I, I, he'd be the first name on the team sheet.
2: A lot of Irish fans will disagree with you because oh, they either. always do. I, <laughs> they, I, they've I, had that
0: love-hate relationship for so long. I, I spend a lot of my time defending it. <laughs> yeah, the same, the same sort of time I uh, that, that I spend defending myself against the attacks that I tend to make about Martin <laughs> O'Neill. So it, uh, I think, like Jack said, and like Martin O'Neill said himself, he possesses something that other players don't have. There's only really Wes Houlihan in the squad and that's likely to make the team that has the ability to do the, the sort of magic that'll change a match within a five second period you, you saw at the start of the campaign the two goals he scored against Georgia especially the the spin he did his trademark McGeady spin but, for but the, that, the that, and
2: that but, excuse come, gets rolled out though every time you know by defenders like yourself and don't get me wrong I think he's a great player and I think he does have that in his arsenal but there are a lot of naysayers out there and they'll say oh here you go again same excuse George, McGeady Georgia oh Wednesday going to happen again in another twenty years?
0: Well, he, is it going to happen for anyone else? Can anyone else do it? Probably not. But yeah. he, the thing about McGeady is he often gets castigated for things that other wingers are let away with. Stephen Hunt, he, much better. He's a much better player than Stephen Hunt. He, if you look at in the current squad, Anthony Pilkington, say on the fringes of the squad or whatever, he's a much better player than him. James McLean is, pro- he's probably a similar sort of a player, but. Whereas McGeady will get down the line and his cross might hit the first defender. He might win a corner or he might he might run it into touch or something stupid. When McLean does the exact same thing, no one actually attacks him for the same thing. But anytime McGeady does it, it's, oh, Jesus, not this again. So right. I think because he's so talented and because there's so much potential there, we judge him to a higher standard than some of the other players of similar ability or even yeah. lesser ability,
2: yeah. And he'd probably like the fact that he gets judged at a high standard like that himself. Uh, Alan Judge, a, a player that uh, sadly won't be going to the euros due to a horrific injury. It has to be said. He might have been one that could have stepped up to the to the to the plate,
0: yeah, definitely. We just seen the, we saw him this season just how fantastic he was for for Brentford and they didn't they were, were never challenging for the the playoffs really or any any sort any way it looked like promotion but he was just head and shoulders ahead of everyone else in that team and for most of the championship
2: of, season he was the best performing championship player and the awards that he got the individual awards month by month kind of proved that
0: yeah exactly if he, he he's the kind of player that if he had have stayed fit Brentford probably would have finished finished another three or four places above above yeah. the table that they did in mid-table and maybe been on the fringes of the playoffs. But it's, if he can get back fit again, you can definitely see him getting the move to a, a promotion-chasing club, if not a lower-end Premier League club. But it's just kind of a shame that he didn't stay fit and we can't, can't see them, him in this match against Holland or the match against yeah, Belarus on I Tuesday.
2: I agree. He's a nice lovely guy as well with a, with a young family so hopefully he's back on his feet very soon. Uh, this May marks six years since Shane, Shane Duffy almost lost his life while on international duty with Triovanni Trapattoni's Ireland in Malachide. He looks set to have taken a step closer though this time to the, fi- to the final Euro squad after Mark Wilson had a recent setback. Uh, here's Martin O'Neill talking or here's Shane Duffy and here's what he had to say
4: yeah well I appreciate everything after it to, to be honest it's, uh, it's been a long it's been six years since it's happened and it's, uh, to be back in the fold is obviously a um, proud thing for me and my family and stuff like that but yeah it's not just this, this it's, it's, uh, it's being back playing on the pitch and everything in life really to be honest
2: well, there you go, Jack. He's loving life. Things are great. He's had a terrific season at Blackburn. It has to be said. I know he'll probably feel a bit aggrieved that every time he comes to a, an Irish, does an Irish press conference or that they ask him about that famous incident uh, when they clashed, he clashed with the Irish amateur goalkeeper in a training match. But uh, having said that, you know he proved it against Switzerland, if I'm if I'm right, and he's had a terrific season. So it's been very positive from a Shane Duffy point of view.
3: Yeah, yeah, it should be. I mean, it was an incident. I think it's always going to get brought up because I think he was in hospital for around six days. So severe liver complications. So look, it's 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 something that he's had to deal with for a while. Um, but he's really since coming back into the island fold. Obviously, he made his debut two years ago and only got in recently um, in the last in the last group of friendlies. But what I've been struck by him is, is just his composure and, and how settled he's looked. Um, as soon as he got a second game against Switzerland, straight away he was very vocal. He's commanding. He's he's giving instructions. It really is a force at that centre back and for someone that played against Switzerland with the least amount of caps on the field he really just seems like a natural leader out there and, and he's such a bulking physical man as well I think he stands at about 6 foot 5 so he's an imposing figure there at the back as well um, so he is someone that I'm really looking to see how he goes in these next two games because in my mind it's it's such a fiercely uh, competitive spot there probably arguably with centre midfield it's probably one of the most competitive spots in the Irish team itself so between Clark, Yo, O'Shea and Duffy. It's going to be really intense now over the next two games to see just who's going to be their defensive partnership for the first game against Sweden next month.
2: And Ronan, is there any chance that John O'Shea might not be an automatic starter? We see he had, I won't say he had a bad end to the season, but he certainly wasn't you know, completely leading the line for Sunderland. I know he, he was left out of the starting lineup on, on a few occasions or that. And, you know, you do have Kieran Clark in there, injured at the moment. Uh, Richie Kyo in there as well. Uh, what about Duffy's chances uh, for Euro 2016? It's probably fair to say he has a decent chance of going, but um,
0: getting his game. Yeah, I think he, he'll definitely be on the plane but uh, I, 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 t- I, I tend to agree with you about John O'Shea that his place isn't guaranteed anymore. At one stage, him and I suppose James McCarthy and Seamus Coleman were the three players that were going to be in the in the first team for every match but John O'Shea, especially the season he had with Sunderland he they got relegated, he, he was left on the bench as they were getting relegated. It was kind of... It was kind of a, a surreal lo- looking at O'Shea and he was su- such a colossus of Irish football and the the experience he had with Man United and everything. And Then he wasn't even part of their relegation battle. It, w- it was kind of strange to, to watch that and maybe that might see Richard Keo or Karen Clark or, like you're saying, Shane Duffy being with a chance of fitting in because there, there's two spots and four players to, f- to fill those two spots. So anybody could... Any partnership could work, and we, we saw, like Jack was saying, just how good the Clark and Duffy partnership was against Switzerland. I know that was a friendly, and these two matches are both friendlies as well, but if Duffy has similar games in, in both matches, there'll be a lot of people clamoring for him to start against Sweden in the Euros.
2: There will indeed. Well, we we're talking about injuries earlier on and the fact that Martin O'Neill will not want to make any risks here and a couple of injuries have cropped up, James McCarthy and obviously Kieran Clark and here's what what the guys had to say on that, here's what Martin had to say about those players
4: They they may not play, yeah they may not play in the game Um, again I think that um, both in normal circumstances would like to get some training done before you step into the game, if they haven't um, no, we've got tomorrow. If they haven't trained by tomorrow, then I, I'm, I'm more than I'm more. I think I'm more or less likely not to not to put them in for that game.
2: Well, there you go, Jack. I mean, obviously, we won't see James McCarthy or Kieran Clark feature against the Netherlands. Maybe a, a little run out against Belarus.
3: Potentially, um, from from what I've gathered, from what I would have thought anyway, I would have thought that. You know, he might have given the Seamus Coleman's, the Glenn Whelan's, the James McCarthy's, the first 60, 65 minutes of Holland, and then, you know, the Belarus game would have been... A real probably dogfight for those last positions on the plane. Um, so I, I wouldn't have imagined that his regular starters would have played in the second game. Would have thought they would have got the good chunk of the of the first game, and then sat out the second game. But I think obviously with McCarthy and Clark gone, two guys that we've we probably assume will be will be starters um, in the first game against Sweden. You can imagine that they'll be playing in the Belarus game. Um, but with O'Neill himself, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, he's he's very guarded, isn't he? He's he's not going to give away a lot and. Sometimes I can't tell if, if he's kind of just playing the media and he does know what's going on or if he really is going to leave it to the final hour because as we've seen earlier just this week with his squad selection, he's been very kind of flippy-floppy on whether he's going to name the squad after the Holland game or whether he's going to name it after the Belarus game. But as I've been covering him over the last year, I really wouldn't be surprised unless he he, he names it you know, right at the 11th hour of the last day after the Belarus game. I really think he might he might name it, you know, at 11 o'clock on that Tuesday.
0: Yeah, but Is there a possibility that Martin might be uh, petitioning UEFA to try and name 35 players <laughs> in his final squad? <laughs> He'd love that.
2: Yeah, he?
3: yeah. I think provisional squads, you know, everyone else seems to be naming, you know, you might name a 30-man squad and O'Neill will come in with a 44-man squad. So I think he could be trying to set records there. But... Um, no, he, he, he likes to make his, his, his cuts and his changes in bulk, you know. So, uh, look, it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of days because there's 23 that can only go and there's 31 in the squad. So, literally, you know, just under a quarter of that squad ain't going to be there. Come next
2: week. Well I suppose it's a, a little bit easier for Martin O'Neill to cut in bulk rather than doing what say someone like Belgium did and picked 24 in order to cut to 23. Mm. <laughs> you know mm. you wouldn't want to be that one player. It would have been very difficult and I guess it's a little bit different to what Trap does. You know, Trap would have known his team and then if he didn't know his team, there might have been a few late additions and then you had the whole Kevin Foley thing. So hopefully we're a little bit past that now. But one player who the friendlies will prove vital to is uh, Harry Arter. Of course, he's had an excellent season with Bournemouth. Injury has finally kind of been put behind him, but he was in a press conference this week and it seemed to be the Irish journalist had more interest in asking him about his personal life and, you know, the tragic circumstances when he lost his daughter. Uh, Have a listen to what Harry had to say.
4: Unfortunately, yeah, it does. Um, You know, before that, this would have been, you know, the beyond all for me. If I didn't get in the squad, I probably would have been devastated. Um, But I certainly know the word, what devastation means now. It's it's a completely different uh, meaning to me. If I did miss out, it'd be
0: a disappointment. Um, Certainly not devastation. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to try and do her proud. Um, I want to try and make my family proud. Um, still pretty raw in the sense of it's only been just over five months. Um, you know, I, I don't mind talking about her, but um, yeah, of course I want to do her proud. Um, in my eyes, in my family's eyes, she, she was here for nine months. She was with us for nine months and I'm proud to say she, she was my daughter and I want to try and do her proud if she's watching.
2: Yeah, Ronan Murphy, obviously a very sensitive topic dealing with a deeply personal issue there, but it's come up again. Um, I guess given the personal nature, nature of it, Ronan, do you think the Irish journalist should be asking him about, about this? I mean, he seems to, at this stage, Harry Arter has done so many interviews about this topic. Uh, he's r- 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 he, r- he raised awareness and, and all that. But, uh, you know, with his squad, you know, trying to get into the Euros squad, is that the right thing to be asking him? It,
0: it might necessarily be, but uh, it's I suppose he, it's something that he's never going to forget, and it's always going to be part of him. So, as time goes on, he'll probably grow stronger at talking about it. But the whole kind of thing puts everything in perspective. Here we are talking about will this player or that player go on the on the plane or the the kind of it, it's football at the end of the day. All oh, this is it's it's just a sport. It's it's not more important than life and that yeah you, you see you see how important the, that event personal tragedy was and how it's changed harry Arthur and he, he's such a different player at, or a different person and he see he compared, said that the the devastation of of it nothing could be comparable and it's exactly right and i suppose it put it puts everything into perspective that the euros isn't the be all and all they're more important things so if we look at it that way and if we try and be strong the way harry arthur is like he's he's a role model the, the way he's carried on and especially how quickly he turned he returned to work afterwards and how he's looking after his family and everything if we look at it that way that Like If we do go, and Ireland do go to the Urals, and if we lost every match 6-0, sure, it's not the end of the world at the end of the day.
2: Absolutely. And, and, you know, Jack, looking at Harry Arter from a football perspective, he is one player that could really benefit from these friendlies and and give Martin O'Neill food for thought.
3: Absolutely, he's been very unlucky with injury not to feature before. I mean, he's been in he's been in the squads for over a year now, and I think he might only have one or two caps at this stage. So, look, he's something that provides something different. I think the the most famous description of him is Terry Butcher describing him as a more mobile Andrea Pirlo, and um, which is always nice to hear. But realistically, I don't think he's at that level. But he is someone that is comfortable in the ball, and as Ronan mentioned there before, I don't think we have too many of those players. You think of. You know, Aidan McGeady, Wes Hoolahan—they're only really type of players that are very, very comfortable on the ball and they create things. And I think Arda, while he's more of a traditional centre midfielder, he is comfortable on the ball. He is someone that is capable of passing and he is someone that's capable of creating. So I think he provides something of a different option, and especially when you already have guys that are, you know would be quite similar in that regard—the the Stephen Quinns, the David Miler's, the Darren Gibsons—more probably deep lying midfielders. I do think Arda can provide something different, and maybe. That could prove to be his advantage when O'Neill's naming his final squad
0: Oh Jesus, I forgot Darren Gibson was in the squad <laughs> Oh Lord
2: it seems he, like be- he better
0: not go anywhere near that plane well, I think he's going to get in uh, he, he can't, can
2: uh, he? I think he I know, could get I know in. he
0: played a few games for Everton at the end of the season. But sure, I would have nearly got into that Everton game at the end of the season.
2: <laughs> well, Martin, yeah. Martin O'Neill has always been a fan of Darren Gibson. And, you know, it, it, I think similar to the Aidan McGeady situation. He will. He knows what he can do when he's fully yeah, fit. Yeah, from long range. Fully fit, full of confidence.
0: I can absolutely see Darren
2: Gibson going.
0: I I tend to disagree with you there. I think he might bring David Myler as that that last centre midfielder because Myler, he's played him at full-back before and he might be able to slot into that role. I think the the versatility of Myler might get him in. but, But if you're looking at Myler and Gibson and Quinn, none of them will probably even get a minute in the Euros. So it probably hardly matters at the end of the day.
2: Well, how many centre midfielders do you think he's going to bring?
0: Well... Martin loves the diamond midfield, so if he could bring no wingers, he probably wouldn't matter. <laughs> Jack bring probably goes better them. from seeing him in in this week.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we, we, it's been a, it's been a subject all week, and realistically, when we think about it, you have to imagine that with the four centre backs, they're all going to go. Um, with Seamus Coleman and Cyrus Christie that's right back and right back cover same with Robbie Brady and Stephen Ward so that's eight players already there then you've got to imagine you know you've got your wingers, your, your, your John Walters your Aiden McGeady's, your James McLean's your forwards you can imagine let's say hypothetically he's going to take four you Robbie and, and Shane Long are all guaranteed which leaves probably Kevin Doyle, David McGoldrick and Daryl Murphy for the other two positions
2: well, I'd
0: say Daryl so, Murphy would probably get in there yeah, the, yeah, he'll be the Ipswich man to get in, and Kevin will go for the sake of it. You yeah,
3: think, you, yeah, think
2: yeah Kevin, you think Kevin? You think you guys think Kevin Doyle
0: will get in? Oh, definitely, yeah, because he can actually score at international yeah. level, whereas they, D- Darren Murphy cannot.
3: Yeah, zero goals from nineteen appearances. I, I think it's twenty-one appearances great. now, Jack. Yeah. Sorry,
0: I think it's tw- it might be 21 appearances
3: now Yeah well either <laughs> way it's not great you know, I was
2: reading an interview uh, with Daryl Murphy this week and he was saying they were asking, they actually asked him the question why is it that you're a prolific goal scorer at club level but it hasn't worked out and he was talking about oh one shot hits the bar the other shot hits the keeper and all this kind of thing and he thinks it will come good for him but um, Martin O'Neill does like him and you know he started both Bosnia games
3: yeah, and he does, and he and he started the uh, he started the Germany game as well. He, he got the start against England and Scotland. I remember, I think it was in Scotland, he hit the bar with a header. Look, he's a big physical presence that can do a lot of things for you. He, he can unsettle defenders. He can lay the ball off. But at the end of the day, as Ronan said, if you're getting 20 caps and there's zero goals, at the end of the day, a striker must put the ball in the back of the net. And especially when you have someone as prolific as Shane Long, as we've seen him towards the end of the season, you've got the all-time record goal scorer, albeit he's not the same player that he was five years ago, less so 10 You know, there's a lot of other options there, so I do think the one thing that will be Murphy's grace is that he can be someone that can be disruptive, he can be a physical presence, and he's someone different than maybe, say, Robbie, Kevin, Doyle, or or McGoldrick.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, and uh, and as well as that, Martin O'Neill he does like that sort of battering and ram striker. Dave, you will remember being an Aston Villa fan.
3: Oh
2: yeah. That
0: uh, instead of signing Falcao for Aston Villa, Martin <laughs> O'Neill decided. Oh yeah, Emil Heskey's yeah up. We'll we we'll bring him in instead. Yeah. Well. So. Well, I'm just
2: I'm putting a list down here on. Irish strikers and I've got John Walters, Robbie Keane, Shane Long Daryl Murphy, McGoldrick and Doyle and if Martin O'Neill is going to play the one striker with say Wes Houlihan playing you're looking at a lot of strikers that won't have much to do so I mean I'm looking for at least two strikers out of that six to cross off so I think McGoldrick is crossed off and I think I think it's between Kevin Doyle and Daryl Murphy but I think he prefers Daryl Murphy I think he'd bring both
0: so
3: I think Walters
0: bring... counts as a winger these days
3: right. yeah, I think so too oh, even okay. though Walters pretty much he does drift right into the middle and then he can he can also play on the wing but yeah, I suppose Walters wouldn't really play a traditional role of a winger he's, he, he likes to rove a lot doesn't he yeah,
0: yeah I suppose If you, the thing about that as well Dave if, if you're 1-0 down or 2-1 down with 5 m- minutes to go or 15 minutes to go and you look to the bench who do you send on yeah. You, you, you're C- not, Caleb, going to, you're not going Follin. to send on an extra centre midfielder. You might look at sending on Kevin Doyle and yeah. Daryl Murphy and yeah. hope that Daryl Murphy finally gets that goal. Yeah,
2: I was saying Caleb Folan. I'll never forget Trapattoni uh, <coughs> sent on Caleb Folan and Noel Hunt against Italy in Barry and... Italy were down for ten men, but they somehow led one nil for the whole game. And Caleb Folan played as like just behind the two strikers of Robbie Keane and Noel Hunt, and it was just suited Trapattoni's tactics absolutely perfectly. It was it was the one time I seen it all work to perfection you know
0: yeah can we bring Gary Doherty back out of retirement <laughs> hey
2: that, he was great against Georgia in two games actually against Georgia I should say he won out there in Tbilisi when Kevin Kilban was getting knives thrown at him from the crowd uh, right I, we're almost out of time here on the Goal Island podcast lads but before we go I want to uh, draw your attention to the club scene and Brendan Rogers has been appointed as manager of Celtic yeah, a lot of talk about this this a lot of talk going on about this over the week, and uh,
4: here's what Martin O'Neill had to say about the whole thing. It would not be as exciting as my appointment, you know, but um, uh, but a really good appointment. And we had a little joke here the other day of saying saying because they'd mentioned here about four about Roy Keane being a good fit, but I think Brendan, I think it's a great job, and I think he'll he'll do, he'll do splendidly. And I do genuinely think it's a, a really great appointment for Celtic.
2: Well, what about that, Jack? Should Brendan Rodgers have taken it? It's, it's really a job you have to win and you have to win well. It's one of those, some people describe that job as a poison chalice.
3: Yeah, I do think it's a bit of a thankless task, to be honest, because, I mean, as we've seen, the amount of abuse that, that Ronnie Dyler got, even winning the league, you really have to perform well throughout the entire campaign. And then also, there's so much pressure on you just to qualify for Europe and as we've seen Celtic have struggled there mightily in the last couple of seasons. So to be honest, a lot of your season is really geared towards those first couple of months and qualifying and seeing if you can get in the Champions League, seeing if you can have a good Europa League run. and if you can't do that, the pressure and the knives are really out for the rest of the season, but it's gotten
2: but really it's- bad for Celtic in Europe though recently, Jack.
3: Tremendously, tremendously bad, and and I, and I can't see it. I was speaking to someone other day. I, I don't see Celtic getting the same caliber of players, the Henrik Larsens, the Stillian Petrovs of of years gone by. That was
2: that team that Martin O'Neill had at Celtic. I think was the most they had uh, the club had spent in their history, or something. They really, you know, they invested heavily in that squad.
3: Absolutely, guys like Chris Sutton, and I, and I think with the with the financial disparity between England and Scotland now. Even growing further, I mean, you're talking of, of bottom teams in the Premier League garnering, you know, estimated 140 million. You know, it's, easy, it's, it's colossal and it's hard for every team in Europe to compete, never mind Scotland. So, um, yeah, look, it, it's, it's got to be a hard one. But look, it's someone that does seem, from what I've heard from Rogers, he is planning to seek out O'Neill and talk to O'Neill and seek his guidance um, as someone who's done tremendously well in that role before. So it will be interesting to see how he goes. He's had good success at Swansea, good success at Liverpool. You know, never quite really delivered, We got them close, um, albeit basically behind the brilliance of Luis Suarez. But I mean, it, yeah, it, it does. Someone like seems someone who's generally enthused. So I, I can imagine, given his past success in the Premier League, um, and given you know the, the role it is, and, and his interest and enthusiasm in it, I can see it being a good fit, like O'Neill said.
0: Ronan, what do you think? I think. I am absolutely shocked they were able to get a manager that's anyway decent. I, I I don't know why he has gone there. Frankly, I I can I can see why Roy Keane would have went there because. Ray Keane doesn't have the same caliber that Brendan Rodgers does, but it, it's a fantastic point for Celtic, and it, it's a it's a step down in my opinion for Brendan Rodgers. I know he he doesn't have anything, and he's maybe afraid of becoming the next Alan Carberry or something. But uh, if they
2: don't win Scotland and don't beat Rangers because Rangers are back in Scotland this year, that will probably destroy
0: Brendan's career. Well, it, it's, even aside from winning the league like he, apart from Rangers there's nothing else if he doesn't get to the Champions League group stage which yeah, he could be right. out of by August yeah, July I, I don't, I think like then then his season is over at that stage never mind the rest of the season It's a, <laughs> it, 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 I can't see why he has done it it makes no sense but at, at the same time it's a fantastic appointment for Celtic because it's a much better manager than just they should be getting
3: yeah also I, I will just, just add Ron there briefly you wonder what type of jobs were available in the Premier League and if he is looking to get somewhere like back to a level of a Liverpool some somewhat of a club of that size winning a couple of titles in Scotland albeit you know even with Rangers back it, it could be that you know look good for the resume and could get them back in those circles especially if he has somewhat of a decent European run
0: Oh, it, well, that is true, but he didn't have to look to Scotland. He could have looked at, the, if you look at the way Steve McLaren was over with in, in Holland, he could have looked at the, the Ajax job as come uh, up. I'd love to see uh, that, Brendan Rodgers speaking
2: in a sexy Dutch accent.
0: Yeah, and half half the <laughs> managers that, that are managing in Italy and Germany are, are leaving to go to the Premier League. So there's plenty of space over there too.
2: Yeah, mm. and and you know, he could work on his tan while he's there as well.
0: Oh, definitely. He looks great with a tan. An ordinary man with a tan. He's Ideal. A
2: fantastic. Bleached white teeth and a beautiful brown tan. You don't get much better than that. Well, uh, lads, thanks a million for joining me. We'll be right back here on the Goal Ireland podcast. I'll be talking to a Dutch football expert about Ireland against Holland coming up at the Aviva Stadium. Stay tuned. It's 15 years since Jason McAteer destroyed Dutch dreams when he scored the decisive goal in Ireland's 2002 World Cup qualifier against Louis van Gaal's Netherlands in Dublin. A lot has changed in the intervening years, but one thing that 2016 has in common with then is that the Dutch are missing a major tournament. Ahead of Ireland's friendly with the Netherlands, we're joined on the Goal Ireland podcast by Dutch football expert Stefan Quartz. Stefan, welcome to the show. Oh. Hi there, Dave. How are you? Not too bad at all. We're all gearing up for Euro 2016 here in Ireland, Stefan. But uh, I guess the same can't be said for the Dutch.
1: Yeah, the atmosphere in, in the Netherlands is quite different than, than what we're used to ahead of a big tournament. Now It's we're not there, so yeah, it, it's... A bit of a special atmosphere here,
2: absolutely. I guess a massive surprise really, Stefan, when the Netherlands finished fourth in Group A behind the Czech Republic, Iceland and Turkey. Where did it all go wrong?
1: There there are a number of reasons, to be honest, why why things didn't work out for us this time. Uh, Most of all is that the team isn't really as good as as the World Cup in in Brazil suggested. Uh, We finished third there, but apart from the second half against Spain, we weren't really... That strong, and then I, I think that paints a bit of a wrong picture about about the strength of Netherlands. Because um, obviously um, the, the big four we the Dutch have had um, Van Persie, Van der Vaart, Snyder, and Robin. Um, those four guys have been very important over the past decade or so. And apart from Robin, I, I think all the other three have, have are kind of past their, their best and are no longer well among the world class players we used to have. So um, we don't really have a, a superb squad like we used to have. Um, And then there was uh, obviously another big issue was was, um, the appointment of Guus Hiddink as the man in charge and then later on um, Danny Blind, who both weren't really suited for the job and and that cost them in the qualifiers.
2: One of the things about the qualifiers, though, Stefan, I kind of look at when I look back at the groups. Uh, you were in Group A and finished fourth, but you did have the likes of Czech Republic, Turkey and Iceland. Iceland, a country that really were unlucky not to qualify for the World Cup in Brazil. But anybody else looking at that group would say it's the group of death.
1: Well, I'm I'm, I'm not sure whether uh, it should be considered as a group of death. Um, normally, Netherlands should be able to, to see off um Well, maybe not not all three of them, because they can always uh, some some things can happen and and things can go go wrong a bit. Uh, But normally they should have been able to see off well at least one of those teams to finish in the top three and qualify. And and, yeah, the thing that that didn't happen it it was quite quite a big blow for for the Dutch, to be honest.
2: You say, Stefan, that there's a bit of a. It's a team, a Dutch team that hasn't been, you know, it's probably the one of the worst Dutch teams you've had in years. Is there a little bit of a Dutch football crisis at the moment? Of course, we've always known the Netherlands as being one of the world's superpowers of football, but I guess, you know, there is young footballers like the Memphis Depay and all coming, you know, coming through and players like that, but you know when you're comparing it to the wonderful teams of the past would you consider it a mini crisis almost going on
1: well i think a crisis might be a bit uh, a bit too much to say it's it's a pretty big word and um over the past Netherlands have always had, had good periods and and, and bad periods uh, there's no denying that, that obviously, this is a, a bad period for the dutch um some have even said that that well, this might be the worst team since well the 191980s uh, which which is uh, a big claim to make, but but yeah, I think when you look at the qualifying phase, um, it's clear that, that the team is is no longer uh, a top team in Europe and, and clearly not in the world as well. Um, there might be a few young players coming through, but but I don't think they're, they're ready yet to carry the team in a way that, that uh, players like Robin and Schneider have done over the past few years.
2: But having said that, Stefan, you know, they did do so well in the last World Cup. I know they were beaten eventually and didn't get a place in the final, but they did come third. They beat, I guess, a depleted Brazilian side in the playoff in a, a game that I think a lot of people agree don't re- doesn't really matter in, in football to come third. But having said that, you know, a lot can't surely change in such a short space of time between the World Cup in 2000- 2014, and now the Euros in 2016?
1: Um, yeah, it, it's absolutely true that, that things have, have gone bad very quickly. Um, I think one of the reasons behind it is, is um, what I just mentioned. Uh, um, the, the experienced group of players with, with Robin Snyder, Van der Vaart, Van Nigel De Jong, those guys, um, they're all, well, in, in the early 30s and for most of them, the, the World Cup was the last tournament where they were really able to deliver at, at the highest level. and. Um, they were unable to replicate that uh, in the European qualifiers. Um, normally you have, you have the next generation step up, and the Dutch should have had a, a pretty decent generation because they won the under 21 Euros in 2008 and 9, I think. Uh, but that generation of, of royston Drenthe, uh, Ryan Babel, Ibrahim Afellay, uh, those players have all failed to make that final step in, in their development, and uh, they're nowhere to be seen near the Dutch team at the moment.
2: And is the why do you think? I know it's a, it's a tough question. We sometimes ask the same of upcoming Irish players, and there seems to be a bit of a drift off from superstars maybe at under 19s, under 21s, and then there's a big gap. And, you know, I, I guess maybe you could say the same thing is happening to the Dutch team. You do have young footballers like Memphis Depay, but are they leaving the Eredivisie too early? Because a lot of people will put, down, put it down to the fact that the big clubs, the traditional big clubs in the Netherlands are no longer you know competing at the top level you no longer see the Dutch teams in say Champions League finals
1: yeah like you said it, it's a difficult question to answer really um, uh, for example Clarence Seedorf left, left the Eredivisie at the age of 19 as well and then he became a, a legend at, at club level um, of course uh, things have changed the Eredivisie is no longer at the, that same level um, so it's hard to say whether players leave too early or not um, I mean someone like, like Memphis um, was by far the best player in the Eredivisie last season. And, and there wasn't really much left for him to learn uh, here in the Netherlands. So he seemed ready for, for, the, step, uh, for the next step in his career. Um, obviously, it hasn't worked out for him yet at, at Manchester United. Um, but still, I, I think for him, it was the right decision to make that step. Um, there are other players as well who, who might be better off staying, staying in the Eredivisie a bit longer. Um, for example, there's now a lot of talk about uh, Richetli Bazool who's still only 19, um, has been a starter at Ajax for one season, and he's already being linked with, with a move uh, elsewhere. Um, I'd say for, for players like that, um, it's still a good thing to, to stick around in the Eredivisie for a few years uh, until you have at least, well, f- maybe three, four seasons under your belt and, and, and make the step up from there on. But in the end, it, it's different for, for every single player. Like I said, Sadov was, was ready for it. Um, Memphis seemed ready for it. Um, for others, it might be wise to, to stick around until the 24, 25.
2: Yeah, what do you think is the future going forward now because I know a, a lot of time there's a failing in Dutch football on the international stage. A lot of people will put it down to clashes of personalities in the squ- in the squad and stuff like that and management you you talked about the 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 I suppose the instability of the management team over the years with the Netherlands but you know <sighs> What do you think it really is? I mean, where where do they go from here? Is it going to get better? Or do you think there's always going to be this uh, huge high expectancy from the people in the Netherlands that their team are qualifying for major tournaments? But, I mean, are they going to get back to match those expectations? Um,
1: I, th- I think that Dutch people should should be getting used to it, that they might miss out on, on a big tournament every now and then. Um, like you said, we've been around Pretty much all the time. Um, uh, there were a few exceptions here and there where we didn't qualify. Um, at the moment, the, the squad isn't maybe isn't up, up to to the same level as some of the other European giants. Um, so I think the Dutch might struggle to to make it to the to the World Cup in 2018. Um, but if the, the current generation of players that is coming through right now um, keeps developing the way it is, then I think they should be back for for the Euros in 2020 because there are definitely some
2: some good young players coming through right now. Indeed, and we'll see what happens going through with that. But, Looking, I suppose this weekend you've got uh, Ireland taking on the Netherlands and one of the interesting is there's quite a bit of history between the two sides I know it's a friendly game and the Netherlands are purely proving providing a platform for the Irish to get some game time out of the way before Euro 2016 but you know there's been a lot of history there you've had the sides meeting at Euro 88 again in Italia 90 and then one of the most memorable meetings from an Irish. Irish point of view is that remarkable 2001 fixture in which Ireland finally got over the line in a qualif- competitive qualifier, defeating the Dutch 1-0 at Lansdowne Road. I know it was 2-2 in the when they first met earlier in that campaign. Do you ever think about that campaign? What was the attitude from a Dutch point of view towards Ireland back then? Because it was a, a mighty Dutch team, it has to be said.
1: Absolutely. I mean... Um the Dutch only just missed out on, on making the final of the Euros just, just two years before that. Um, still, I, I, I do think there was plenty of respect towards Ireland, um, even though the Dutch will have, have fancied the chance of making, making it to the, to the World Cup in, in Japan and Korea. But, but still, um, I think everybody was well aware that, that Ireland had a strong team as well at the time. Um, I think you had players like, like Roy Keane. Um, there was Robbie Keane. You had a few Leeds players who were uh, yeah. still, a, still a major force at the time um so i do think there was plenty of respect for that Irish team at the time um also because like you just mentioned uh, the, the the reverse picture had, had ended 2-2 and i, I think Ireland were even two goals up at some point in that game. So That's
2: right. Ireland were 2-0 leading. And then I think uh, it, it the Netherlands got it back to 2-1. And then I think Giovanni van Bronkost with an incredible equaliser, a long-range goal, which kind of rescued it for the Netherlands in that match. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think the Dutch were, were well aware of, of what Ireland were capable of.
2: And indeed, you know, I, I know Louis van Hal was the manager back then as well. And that, that famous match at Lansdowne Road when it was Jason McAteer to score the goal, but I know when uh, Ireland were th- down to 10 men and Louis van Gaal threw on, I think he had six strikers playing at once and I'd never seen so many big names in one team playing against Ireland, throwing everything at them. Uh, it just goes to show, you know, you can have so many big names in your arsenal, but it may not count at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it was a terrific effort from, from the Irish. Yeah. Um, like you said, the, the Dutch had so many big names. Um, Van Gaal was trying everything he could, just, just kept on throwing more and more attackers. Um, but, but it was never really going to work for the Dutch. Um, I think in the Netherlands, that game is, is probably remembered more for, for Roy Keane's early foul on Overmars than, than for McAteer's goal, uh, to be honest. Yeah. Um, that, that really set, set the mood, and I think that's what, what made the difference in, in Ireland's favour.
2: Yeah, it was with that little victory early on in the game. And I suppose back then, referees, you could say, might have been a little bit more lenient. But I think that really set the tone of what was to be a historic day in, Ireland, in Irish football.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was such a statement of intent from, from Keane and, and the way he lifted the entire squad and, and really led them to, to victory. It was a, a phenomenal performance from Keane at the time.
2: It's The match this week, uh, Ireland against the Netherlands, um, it kind of reminds me of, I think it was Euro 2005, if I'm not mistaken uh, Ireland went to Amsterdam to play uh, in Netherlands final warm-up game, friendly game before. Ireland hadn't qualified but um, went to Amsterdam to play the Netherlands in their final warm-up game and Ireland came away with a 1-0 win in a friendly and I think Ruud van Nistelrooy went to Robbie said to Robbie Keane that day how did you guys not qualify but uh, that Ireland team played quite well in that friendly and you know, I suppose, what can Ireland expect uh, from the Dutch on Friday? What kind of team do you think uh, they're going to put out?
1: I think it will be a very young and, and inexperienced squad. Um, I reckon Blind will start with uh, Sillison as the goalkeeper. He's, he's 27, and that will probably be the oldest player in the squad. All the others will be um, in their early 20s, and, and there might even be one or two teenagers in the team. Um, you can expect familiar names, such as uh, Alden from Newcastle, uh, Memphis will be there. Um, the big news in midfield is that Kevin Strootman is, is back from his injury, um, and, and he's likely to to start and, and even wear the captaincy armband. Um, so there will be plenty of, of familiar names, um, but there will also be a, a few, well, probably relatively unknown players for for the big public. Um, Rijllie Bazur, uh, a young Ajax midfielder, will probably start in midfield alongside Van uh, and, and Strootman. Um, And up front is is the new striking sensation, Vincent Janssen. Uh, He won the Eredivisie top scorer title with, I think he got 27 or 26 goals, Um, recently made his Netherlands debut already, Um, got a goal and an assist against England when we beat them 2-1. So there will be plenty of exciting young names out there
2: incredible it should be a, a, a stern test to say the least uh, for ireland this week uh, finally stefan with your native Never- netherlands not there at euro 2016 is there any particular team you're going to be supporting and who is your tip to win the tournament uh
1: well there will be i won't really be supporting them but there are two teams that, that i kind of want to do well uh one of them is belgium uh, because they are our neighbors and then they have a lot of exciting players with uh, Eden Hazard, Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Lukaku. Um, so they have, have quite a few really interesting players. So it will be interesting to see what they can do. Um, I will also secretly be cheering for the Irish because um, my girlfriend lives in Dublin these days. Uh, <laughs> right. So I'm keeping, keeping a close eye on what they're doing. Um, well, it, it will be a tough task for the Irish, I reckon, but um, it, it's definitely a team I will be keeping an eye on. Um, unfortunately, I, I, can't, I can't really see the Irish win it. Um, so, so for the win, I would say uh, France are, are the big favourites
2: for me. Okay, yeah, I think a lot of people will probably agree with you. It's a very different uh, French team to the one we've seen in previous tournaments, and a lot of people say, Stefan, if they can get their mentality right and actually gel together for once, this could be a repeat of, say, France 98, and it could be the start of uh, another golden generation for France.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the main the main things for France will be to make sure they, um, they keep things uh, in control of the pitch. Um, mm. in, in the past, we've seen a, a fair few infights, uh, infights and, and several conflicts at the, at the Netherlands. Um, but France are kind of the, the new Netherlands when it comes to, to infighting and, and stuff like that. Um, they, they have had a, a lot of problems off the pitch um, if they can leave that behind, I'd say they are the favourites
2: incredible stuff well Stefan Coertz we look forward to what's going to be a tough challenge for Ireland in this friendly this weekend but also uh, we wish you the best I know your your team won't be at Euro 2016 but I hope you enjoy it none the same and if you continue continue that Eurovision style voting for uh, your neighbours Belgium I'm sure uh, voted number I think they're number one in the world at the moment uh, so best of luck to them and thanks for joining us on the Goal Ireland podcast
1: thank you for having me Dan.
2: And that's it from us this week. Don't forget to get down to Goal Ireland for the best Irish soccer action. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at GoalComIreland. And on Facebook, we're Goal Ireland. From all of us here and myself, Dave
4: O'Grady. Take care.